This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. I'm a proud member of the Dallas AFL-CIO Central Labor Council. I take pride in it in a whole number of ways, but it's very interesting that the Dallas AFL-CIO Central Labor Council is the oldest central labor council in America. It was the first one chartered in 1956 when the new merged AFL and CIO started chartering local organizations. So we're the oldest. And we are also the last one in the great state of Texas that is built on that model. A model that included having a full-time elected paid officer who is called the Financial Secretary Treasurer. We are the last one in the state of Texas. That doesn't mean that the other central labor councils don't do anything. It just means that they don't have the structure of the original model. But, in my opinion, most of the central labor councils in the state of Texas don't do anything. They've either given up having any staff at all, or if they do have a staff, it's just a secretary, or they have merged together, like they did in Houston. They merged the Central Labor Councils from the whole area, and now they're calling themselves some kind of labor federation. Central Labor Councils do not work through the state apparatus as much as they do through the national. National controls their charters. But here in Texas, where we have a very active and very progressive state federation, the Texas AFL-CIO, they tend to take leadership that used to be independently exercised by the different central labor councils. Dallas is the only central labor council remaining in Texas that has a full-time paid secretary-treasurer. So, one could say that the Dallas AFL-CIO is just a holdout from the old times. And some people would say that. And they would say that the Dallas AFL-CIO should give up having a full-time paid officer and go the way that the others do. Just have a secretary, even though the secretary might call themselves an executive secretary or a secretary in charge or something like that they would still be basically a secretary. Over in Tarrant County, next to Dallas, they have that format. Their paid staffer is an executive secretary. And it's working out pretty well next door in Fort Worth, Texas. Because the person that they hired for the executive secretary is a real go-getter. And so they've done a lot of things that I think kind of point the way toward the future. 
Now let's take a look at the labor movement in general. And you'll see that the dilemma facing the Dallas AFL-CIO is just a microcosm of the dilemma facing the entire American labor movement. Let's go back, say, to the early 1930s. Unions were more or less outlaws. They had literally no support from the government. They had almost no laws in their favor. They were able to exist just on the strength of the power of their membership. In other words, the membership had the ability to hurt the employers enough that they were able to get something. But they didn't really have a national presence and any real strength in a national sense. That began to change during the 1930s. I think more than anything else because of foreign relations. But during the 1930s, the labor movement swelled. It swelled. It had a lot of progressive people in it, a lot of socialists, a lot of communists, a lot of people who sincerely believed in the strength of working families. And they grew. And in 1935, they got a charter from the federal government. It was called Labor's Magna Carta, they called it. It was also called the Wagner Act, and it was also called the National Labor Relations Act. It didn't do a lot for labor, but it did give them a legal status. And union people went out all over the United States and said, President Roosevelt wants you to join the union. The truth is, they were kind of stretching it. But at least they had legal status that they had never had before. And they got some very good laws passed, National Labor Relations Act being the best of them. Uh, Fair Labor Standards Act, I guess, was a very good one too because it gave them the strength to say we're not going to work more than eight hours a day unless you pay us a bunch of overtime pay. So they had began to have great breakthroughs. The United Auto Workers in, organized the entire General Motors, which was the largest corporation in America. They organized them in 1937 with a lot of help from government officials, particularly the governor of Michigan. So the labor movement began to grow, and it grew strong up to 1947. In 1947, the government turned abruptly and terribly, strongly, against the labor movement. They passed laws that curtailed the power of labor rather than strengthening it. The Taft-Hartley Law of 1947 was the worst of them. The communists, the socialists, the progressives in the labor movement were largely driven out. Whole unions were expelled from the labor movement, not just individuals. A lot of individuals were expelled too, 
Individuals were hunted down and beaten up on the job and driven out in that period. The labor movement had some momentum and it continued to grow until about the 1950s, middle, middle of the 1950s. And then it began to peter out because the membership began to dwindle. In 1957, I believe, one-third of all the working people in America were in unions. And it began to dribble away. It wasn't even noticeable for the first 10 years or so. It became really, really noticeable in 1972 when Richard Nixon was running for a second term. His opponent was a very, very progressive Democrat from North Dakota named McGovern. The AFL-CIO did not endorse McGovern. In a backhanded way, they supported Nixon. The reason, probably, was that they had gotten so intertwined with the government and with big corporations that they were more on their side than they were on the side of working people. And then, by then, people really noticed that the labor movement did not have what it used to have. In fact, I recently read one book saying that that was the end of the American labor movement in 1972. It wasn't the end. That's an overstatement. But the continuous loss, drip, 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 the loss of blood from the lifeblood of the American labor movement continued to this day. The latest figure I saw as to how many people or what percentage of people we have organized into labor unions was 10.3%. That's far less than a third of what we had back in the mid-1950s. So we've lost members, and that's probably been true of the Dallas AFL-CIO. I don't know if it is or not. The Dallas AFL-CIO, for some time, has been under pressure to do what the other AFL-CIO Central Labor Councils have already done and take a less strong kind of structure and uh, become more of a defensive organization. One way to look at what labor has done ever since 1947 is that they have only had defense. Some unions defended themselves pretty well. Some unions didn't defend themselves very well. Some unions disappeared. Some unions were forced to merge with other unions. Some unions adapted pretty well, and I think the communication workers is a pretty good example of that. Some unions were able to carry out this defensive posture very, very well, and I think that was true of the United Auto Workers. Even though they were losing members all along, they continued to get pretty good contracts 
one way or the other. They used what laws were left that supported labor, and they used good relationships with some of the bosses, and they were able to keep a lot of what they had won back in the days of union militancy. But they didn't have an offensive side of their fight. Now you can think of this as boxers. Boxers can be very good at defense. They know how to duck and weave and bob and hold their fists up in front of their face and move their elbows around and jump back. Muhammad Ali reminds me of anybody that had the best defense. It was very hard to hit Muhammad Ali. But he also had an offense. And a fighter cannot win just with a good defense. That's been what's the problem with the American labor movement since 1947, since the government turned against them. They've gotten very, very good at defense, but not so great at offense. In other words, they generally can't carry out a strike or a slowdown or a national boycott or, you know, any of the things that would make a labor movement really, really strong. In my experience, in my 50 years of doing this, I have barely seen a few instances where a union really tried to get its membership fired up and on their side before a big fight. For example, in my own union local, we had an amazing fight in 1984. And at that time, we went into that fight with only 70% of the shop organized. Why didn't we hold an internal organizing drive before that fight? We knew when the date was coming, but we didn't prepare. And frankly, we were caught pants down and uh, would have lost had we not changed uh, the way we were doing things. I think that's generally been true. The great exception that I saw was when the Teamsters faced UPS for their big national contract. Oh, I guess it was in the late 90s or early 2000s. And they went out and organized all of their people, got all of their people together, made friends with everybody that they could make friends with, I remember at that time that we were doing Jobs with Justice here in North Texas, and they reached out to, to Jobs with Justice immediately and first, and we were delighted to be able to work with the Teamsters as they got ready for that big fight. By the way, and this is worth noting, the new Teamster leadership that is in power right now is doing the same thing. Their UPS contract is coming up, and they are preparing the nation to fight with them to get a good contract at UPS. That's the right way to do it. It's having a good offense, which means, in the labor movement, which means getting your members behind you, getting well-informed members, excited members, and a lot of members, and also developing a lot of friends in the community, 
among the churches, things that the farm workers were good at doing. And in the 1960s, when the farm workers did that, it seemed very strange to the rest of the labor movement because the rest of the labor movement was not doing it. They were not reaching out to communities and civil rights groups and churches. They were just trying to go it alone. And that was fatal. So the Dallas AFL-CIO faces a pivoting point. Are they going to change into some new version of the labor movement? Is the whole American labor movement going to change into a new version of the labor movement? Are they going to take advantage of the Internet as much as they could? Are they going to give up on having individual unions responsible for their own problems and not making every problem of the labor movement a problem for all of us? Are they going to start organizing together so that the communication workers and the auto workers and the Teamsters and all the other unions will face each organizing problem together and in a strong and militant way and develop an offense that can win. Are they going to change like that? Or drip, 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 will we continue to see the American labor movement dribble away? I think the future holds great things for us. I think there is going to be a new day of solidarity I think the solidarity is not just going to extend to the emergency situations the way it is right now in 2022. I think that in the future we will have an offense of solidarity. In other words, when somebody gets ready to organize, they'll have all the unions with them and a lot of churches and a lot of community workers and people like that. And I think that 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 situation is ripe for happening now. I think it is going to happen right now. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra.